Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Robert Luddy, CEO and founder of Captive Air, the nation's leading manufacturer of commercial kitchen ventilation systems. But he's also the chairman and founder of Thales Academy, a network of private schools around Raleigh, North Carolina. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Bob. Glad to be here, Trevor. Thank you. So why did you decide to found Thales Academy? Well, I originally founded the Franklin Academy in 1998, which was a public charter school. And by 2006, uh, there was a cap on charter schools, and I decided it would be better to go private. So I had a small meeting of parents, which I thought might be 10, and about 30 showed up at our corporate office. And from that meeting, I thought that there was going to be enough interest to begin a uh, what I call affordable, high-quality, private school system. And one of my initial goals was to create a large enough model to convince people that there is a better way to deliver K-12 education. And before you did that, you actually tried to run for school board at some point. Is that correct? I I did. I ran for school board in 97 and won the first round, but then the second round uh, I lost, which uh, was merciful. So what did that teach you about? Either that experience or other experiences teach you about public education and what's wrong with it. Well, if you go back to 1992, I was the co-chair of the North Carolina Math and Science Coalition. And one thing that I learned from dealing with these administrators, they were happy to talk and debate issues, but they were not going to change. Um, That was further indicated when I ran for school board that if you're a reform candidate, or you have new ideas, uh, you're going to be attacked because the the stickiness of the system, everybody within the public school system wants to maintain the status quo because it essentially works for them. Especially the teachers unions. Absolutely. And, and all those that support the public schools, whether it's construction, uh, booksellers, administrators, and all the purveyors of other products that are sold to schools. So you've you founded Franklin, you founded Thales, you ran for school board. Um, one of the objections when when Donald Trump chose Betsy DeVos as his education secretary from from people who were not friendly to a, a reform candidate was this person you know didn't come up through the public education system. They didn't. They don't have long term working experience there. They don't have you know formal teacher training, and so therefore. They shouldn't be in charge of either all schools or some schools. Did did that kind of attitude come up? Did it come up in your your school board stuff? Like, what what sort of do you think that that's necessary? And what sort of background do you have in schools? First of all, it's not necessary. And in some cases, if you're going to be a disruptor, it's probably not desirable because the longer people are around the system the more they tend to believe in it. Uh, Whereas when someone comes from the outside with a whole new point of view, they're able to see the flaws more clearly. If my background was in finance, um, most of my career was spent in engineering, manufacturing, and sales. And certainly that gave me the real life experience to understand what students need to know, how they need to act uh, when they get into the marketplace. 
in terms of the the kind of workers that that you were employing and the kind of skills they needed along along those lines is what you mean. Exactly. And when you had the charter school, you mentioned that there was a cap. Uh, what other constraints were on your charter school, which I, it still exists from what I can tell, correct? Yeah, I'm still the chairman of that charter school. We're entering our 20th year this summer. Uh, the cap was no more than 100 charter schools in North Carolina. That cap was finally lifted in 2010. Uh, however, there are substantial regulations on charter schools. The Department of Public Construction has a special group that constantly issues issuing directives. I'll give you one example. Our Franklin Academy would have two board meetings per year, and we have a very stable board. Most of them have been with us since the foundation of the school. And the state came back and said, you can't you have to have eight meetings a year <laughs> because you have to review your strategic plan at every meeting. So I said, well, number one, we don't have a strategic plan. And number two, we only need two board meetings a year, so we're not going to do it. Subsequently, they passed a resolution on the state uh, school board that required all charters to have eight meetings per year. I'm just sitting here because I meetings are so counterproductive so often. I just can't I can't even imagine just mandating meetings for meeting's sake. That sounds like the kind of thing the government does though. Exactly. And so they um it's much more challenging for teachers. You have these uh, IEPs which you're familiar with, mm -hmm. individual educational plans. And they tend to be legalistic and more focused on paperwork and documentation than actual learning. In our private schools, we don't recognize the IEP program, principally because we believe that every student within our school already has an IEP, because we're going to monitor every single student to make sure that they meet uh, the requirements. So these kinds of rules and regulations that are on charter schools, um, the common view among people who are fans of public education and would say would be opposed to expanding private education or expanding school choice would say these are these are necessary that you know maybe a school that doesn't that its board doesn't get together more than twice a year that the leadership isn't really connected to what's going on at the school level and so it won't be as well run and and similar things can be said do you think are these kinds of regulations well meaning if if ultimately harmful um or is this is there something else going on? Is this more about you know try, intentionally trying to make things difficult for charter schools? I think they're well-meaning and intuitively they sound good to the public and therefore the bureaucrats are able to take advantage of them. So for example, if you say we have a licensed teacher, that sounds pretty good to a parent in the public. But then if you say to a parent, well, what are the requirements to be a licensed teacher, and why is that important? They won't know. Uh, you could use the same line of questioning on accreditation. Our private schools are not accredited. Well, actually, none of our schools are accredited. And so if someone says, well, it's important to be accredited, and I'll ask them why, and then usually they'll say, so that you can get into college, and then I tell them, well, colleges don't care about accreditation. Uh, it's just not a criteria. It's not required whatsoever. And we put students in the best colleges in the land. 
then they begin to think differently about it. In addition, I'll say, well, our Wake County schools are accredited and you know they're graduating terrible students. How is that working? So as they begin to think about it more, they realize the folly of many of these ideas. When you were creating Thales, did you yourself have a, th a theory of education or an educational philosophy that you wanted to pursue or did you get a bunch of people together to try and figure out what kind of school this would be? No, I had my own theory, which were essentially adopted uh, from other people. Uh, one is in the K-5, we use a methodology called direct instruction. It was put together 40 years ago by a man named Engelman who essentially said there, there should be a scientific way of teaching reading, math, phonics, and spelling and mathematics to students. So he developed both a curriculum and a methodology of instruction that's definitely effective. It's probably the most effective way you can teach reading uh, known to man. Uh, so we essentially adopted that system, and we became one of the best practitioners in the country in this K-5 direct instruction. In the 6th to 12th grade, we adopted what we call the classical curriculum, essentially what I had in high school. And the classic curriculum takes you all the way back to the Greeks and Romans. It teaches you history, rhetoric, and gives you a fuller understanding of the world with the idea and the end game being to develop good characters who are great thinkers. Kind of interesting because a lot of times when you hear about private schools, uh, and, and Aaron actually has more experience with this than I do because his, his wife had taught at private schools, but they, they usually seem um, almost less regimented than your traditional public school. And you talked about this direct uh, this direct instruction model and its regimentation and, and and the science of it, and that of course was part of the public school model of, of cry, trying to figure out the way to educate people. But but one of the interesting things about your school that people might not expect for private schools is that the class sizes are actually bigger. Uh, why is that? Well, when I went to high school, we averaged fifty plus students. And at no time was there any discussion about class size. So in my mind, if you have 25 students in the room, it seems like a small class. And, and I've taught many classes and seminars around the country. And normally, if I'm doing a seminar presenting, I'd rather have more people, not fewer people. Now, that could put a little bit of stress on the teacher in terms of uh, – correcting exams. But for example, in our K-5 uh, system, we do hom homogeneous grouping. So in first grade, we might have four reading groups, and every student is in a group where they can learn. Every month, we reevaluate, and the students will stay the same. They may go to a higher group, or they may go to a lower group. If they, if they move to a lower group, it's only temporarily so they can learn the lessons and then they move upward. So the homogeneous grouping allows many more students. If we had 30 students in a, a direct instruction class, it wouldn't make any difference whatsoever. We do require close to perfect discipline. So we don't have disciplinary issues to deal with. And if we're unable to discipline a child in a given day, we send them home. Now, as a result of that, it's very rare that a child ever goes home because everybody knows the requirements. So by making a few changes, 
we're able to have larger class size, more robust instruction, and drive down cost. Do you select for disciplined children upon entering the program? Or I mean, like I've, you know, I have a an eight year old and two four year olds at home, um, and I know that you know first graders and second graders can have a hard time sitting still all day and you know and and focusing. Are you? I guess weeding out the kids that are going to have discipline problems or are you teaching them to be that disciplined while they're there? We are teaching them to be disciplined. Uh, so for example, in the public charter school, we admit by lottery and that's where we started this process. It's, it's incumbent upon the teacher to be able to manage that class. There are times and cases when she's unable to manage a particular student. And then students generally know it's just not permissible. So it becomes uh, not easy, but much easier to manage that class than it would be in other types of settings. What are the uh, admission requirements? Well, for a public charter, there, there's no admission requirements. For Thales, uh, we do require that they uh, sometimes take tests. They have an interview with the teacher. But we accept into the 95th percentile of students. And here's something very interesting about direct instruction. Very often we will have students that are labeled LD. They come into the program and we don't, offer, we don't offer any special learning disability programs. But we'll say, put them in our program and more than likely they'll do fine. So we have many students that enter with IEPs, LD, or some other classification that do tremendously well and acclimate to direct instruction, uh, again, saves an enormous amount of time, allows us to mainstream the student, and it's been definitely effective for us. And what about the costs of this? Is uh, you know, It is a nonprofit, um, and, which is interesting, but the, but the cost per student uh, and how that is paid either by the parent or do you have scholarship systems like to are most of these people these students wealthy, um, or do you have different ways of assisting? Most of them are uh, middle class. Some are lower middle class, so they pay in a number of ways. The tuition in the K five is five thousand dollars, so many parents can afford five thousand if they sacrifice somewhere else. We do provide a certain number of scholarships uh, which are determined through an organization called FACTS, F-A-C-T-S. They will make a recommendation based on the financial information received from the family, how much of a scholarship they should get. And then in addition in North Carolina, for families under 60000 in income, there's a North Carolina scholarship program for $4,200. So if they're able to qualify for the 4200 they only have another eight hundred to pay uh, to enter the school. How does that compare to what the the public schools in North Carolina are spending per student? Wake County is about eight thousand dollars plus capital expense. Uh, our capital expense is included in our five thousand dollars. We build a very high quality building, but because we're able to get low cost financing. We only spend about 8% of revenue for our buildings. Um, the public schools get bond money to build these buildings, and they spend, on average, two and a half to three times per student 
for capital costs than Thales would spend. And I, I would make the case that our buildings are far superior in every way, and especially in terms of aesthetics, beauty, order, sustainability, etc. So then what's the what's the difference? Like what when they're spending two or three times as much per student for the building, what are they getting for that that your buildings don't have? They tend to build very sprawling buildings, which really run up the cost. Uh, they buy too much land. They build too many sports fields. And they've got all types of atriums and other things that really have no value. Uh, we actually have small atriums in our buildings, which are aesthetically very beautiful, um, but they're not as costly as in the public sector. So I would argue our buildings are much safer because they're designed for safety. They're more sustainable. It's all brick and steel. So the public schools, I think, allow the architects free expression and that free expression expression costs the public school system a lot of money. And plus you have parental groups that are driving all types of would-be nice things that they want in the building, but don't help educate students. And then teacher compensation. I mean, one of the things I know from my my wife was an elementary school teacher for quite a long time and she worked in both private and public schools, is that the the public schools tended to pay better than the private schools do. Is that the case here? Are you paying roughly the same as what the public school teachers would be getting? Uh, we pay the public school scale currently. In the longer term, the big problem is tenure. So the longer they stay, the more money they get. At some point, we're going to eliminate that tenure pay. And we, to some degree, have already done that and move into more pay for performance, which obviously is not favored by some teachers. Uh, but that allow, will allow us and has allowed us to attract excellent teachers who want to be paid for performance and who don't want to be working around teachers that are not performing well. Additionally, we only use one-year contracts. So every year, the teacher has to earn their contract for the following year, no tenure. Why Thales? Why the name Thales? Well, when we were originally going to start this school, we had a stand-in name. Uh, it was Thomas Jefferson. But we knew we, were, we couldn't get a trademark. So we wanted to have a name uh, that we could get a national trademark. And my daughter did some research and came up with Thales, who was one of the first Greek scholars. And I said, well, with classic education, this fits perfectly. And that's where it came from. But but as Aaron pointed out I just, earlier I, before we started recording. Yeah, it's the Thales. It was just interesting to me because Thales, one of the stories about him is um, he, he didn't marry for quite some time and Solon came and said why. And he said it's because he didn't want to bother with children. <laughs> <laughs> but but he eventually broke down and he he married and he adopted a child. So – uh, so there's an out, but a reprieve. Yes, on the licensing, you don't you don't require teachers to be licensed, or are, are any of your teachers licensed? Um, many of our teachers are licensed because they came out of the public system. Okay, but you don't. I do have one other school that I started, St. Thomas More Academy, that is a independent Catholic school, high school only. I call it a boutique Catholic school. Two hundred students. And they don't have any licensed teachers there, but they do have three PhDs and a number of master's degrees. 
Is that something that there's been skepticism about? You know, so a, a licensed teacher presumably has had some degree in order to get that license. You have to have some degree of training in pedagogical techniques. So not just training in your subject area like you would get with a PhD, but but training in how to teach children. Um, so I can imagine a skepticism about you know I'd, turning your kid over to someone who knows math really well but doesn't necessarily know a lot about how to teach math. We do our own training. So for example, the direct instruction has its own methodology. In many ways, you're better off with someone who's not been trained as a teacher. Although we find that the teachers from the public system are able to acclimate to it if they so choose and can be very excellent uh, direct instructors. Do your students have to take standardized tests? In the public charter, they do. Uh, but from the beginning, we've used Iowa Basic Skills, uh, PSAT and SAT as our primary markers because they're nationally normed tests. But, gen- but generally speaking, we, I guess that's a broader question too about what what regulations – I mean I'm sure there's obviously a ton of regulations that the government puts on Thales. But is there any baseline regulation of what you have to teach or or what you have to assess or anything like that? The private school law in North Carolina is very simple, and it simply states that you have to notify the state that you're going to start a school. You have to be in compliance with all state laws, buildings, safety, etc., and you're, you're required to have some type of norm testing and to publish it, and that is it. So there's no licensing required, no curriculum. There's virtually no... Uh, bureaucratic rules for t- private schools. What does the performance look like then? Like, are the kids at Thales outperforming the kids in the public school? Is it possible if you're using a different set of tests to to know how they're doing compared to the kids in the public school? The easiest test um, to to mark them would be SAT graduates. Now we're just beginning to graduate. This is only our second year to graduate Thales students. You mean people who went from kindergarten all the way through senior year? They didn't all go from kindergarten because remember we started in 08. Um, but they started somewhere along the line. And we're averaging in the range of 1,200 SAT scores. In North Carolina, the average for the whole state is a little under 1,000. So that's 20% better than the state. And then the local school system averages about 1,050. So it's certainly 15% better than Wake County, which has the best demographics in the state. For the uh, the fact that Thales is a nonprofit is, is interesting to me that that the, the profit motive can be useful in innovation, as you're well aware, and in, in, in cutting costs and things like this. Um, do the students for the, the cost that you're paying, that they're paying, are they – are you breaking even essentially on this or do you have to uh, get donations or, or use your own funds? Is is it sustainable without an influx of, of cash just from what the students are bringing in? It is sustainable with these comments. First of all, we do not do any fundraising and we have a strict rule. There's no solicitations from funds from anybody for any reason. And the rationale for that is we have to learn to live within our budget which I think is an important lifetime skill. When the facilities are built, I've been putting in about a third of the capital costs. The remainder of the capital costs are 
and interest are depreciated within the school operation. And typically in the first two to three years, the schools lose money and I make up that money. And I also put in scholarship money. But could you could and you, thereafter we expect those schools to be sustainable and to cash flow? Could you well, the for profit model though? Is that something that you wouldn't want to do in education? Is there some reason you chose the nonprofit model? I would want to do it. Uh, the problem is the perception of for profit is so bad within the parental community. It's just very hard to do. It's just one more battle you have to fight. And essentially, we run our we wouldn't run them any different were they to be for profit. That that uh, turns education into a business. And well, and our term is that uh, we run schools like a business. And to most teachers and to administrators, if you bring the word business around the school, they just can't handle it at all. But we've acclimated our team that schooling is a business, a college is a business. And so as they acclimate to it, we run Thales exactly like we would run Captivere from a budgetary standpoint, how we spend money, how we think about things. Now, what about the parents? Um, are they the inter- are they more involved? Are they are they coming in and uh, you know with the public school having failed their children and 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 kind of shown the light uh, or? I mean, I feel like that they would be more involved because they're paying for it to some extent. You could you could maybe engender a little bit of disconnectedness with parents in the public school system. Is there a very strong community of parental involvement there? Yeah, generally they are more involved. So as you mentioned, they're already paying a fee. They have to drop their students off. So there's no buses. You drop them off and pick them up. That in itself creates an extraordinarily high level involvement with the student. And I would say for the vast majority of those parents, they're very interested in their child's education. They're assisting them in every way possible. And we look at it as kind of a team effort. You have the teacher, the parent, and the student. And we have to work together as a team. It doesn't always work perfectly, but it works very well at Thales. What do the teachers think of it? Um, do you is – it, is it competitive to get a job – Teaching at Thales, do the do the teachers like this, the the instruction and the the way that the operation is run compared to what they were used to in the public schools? Most of the teachers absolutely love it. So we might have some teachers that come from the public system and work a year or two and and not like it, but for the most part, and teachers tell me this all the time, once they come to Thales and they have this beautiful ordered classroom and great curriculum and interested parents, they would never go back to the public system. Now, it, would, it, was, it would be a tremendous hardship for them to go backward. And I've had many teachers tell me, if for whatever reason I'm not working here in the future, I will not be working in the public system. How many teachers were – so you said that they, the teachers are on you – know, there's no tenure. They have to um, basically justify getting their, their contract again each year. What are the what does the turnover look like? Like how many teachers fail to make it on to the next year? If you look at the overall turnover, it's about the same as the public system, somewhere in the range of ten to fifteen percent, depending on the year. So you have some certain number of teachers get transferred, they get pregnant and decide to stay home, and then some are let go. 
So every year you have a turnover in that range, which mostly I view as beneficial because we found over the years that you can have really good people, but they aren't the only good people in the world. And some turnover actually for an organization is beneficial because you're bringing new talent and new thinking into the organization on a continuous basis. I want to go back to you mentioned that they that they dropped the the kids off, which would seem to possibly uh, there's no school buses. So that would seem to be choose a specific type of of parent who is able to do this. That the big criticism you hear from the supporters of public schools is that they have to take everyone, and and you don't. And even just not having school buses and not have going down to maybe some severe learning disability level and stuff just makes it easier on you. But it's not really a comparable system. Well, if you looked at our. Uh public charter school, it certainly is a comparable system because we take anybody and we have a higher number of challenged students than the average school because it's a very good school and parents want to get their students who are challenged into that school. At the Thales, we can take 95% of the students, maybe 97, and the ones that we can't take may have severe behavior problems or they may have severe learning problems that require more like a one-on-four, one-on-six type of setting, which is available in our area. And I think it's a better place for those students to be. But, but that – in terms of how – the sort of the question here of scaling this, if we wanted to supplant the public school system or at least make it just – you know, twenty percent of students or something. Uh, we, we do have, in terms of low income, trying to p- provide certain services for all types of students and things like this. Do you, can, do you think p- private education can do that too? Absolutely. Um, we have many people on the margin. Some we help out. Uh, some other people help out that are in our schools. And I would say, just for a large number of students within our schools. The school is the best thing happening to them in their life. Uh, it's going to give them a, a tremendous future relative to what they would have had. And so we are providing an enormous service. And if you look at the special needs students in public schools, you have to remember every time they admit a special needs student, they receive additional money. And as a result, the number of special needs students has expanded because they're happy to identify you as special needs and take in more money. We want to go the other way. and we, we might say you may have special needs, but we think you can fit within our system and do quite well. Do you offer extracurricular activities? We do. Uh, for example, starting in the morning, you can have early drop-off as early as 7 a.m. After school, we have a whole range of activities at the school that the parents can sign up for. They do have to pay additional money for that. And they can leave their uh, children at the school until almost six o'clock, again, if they pay extra money. We do not have football, and we have somewhat of a de-emphasis on sports, but we have basketball, soccer, and many opportunities uh, for these students to participate in sports. But academics comes first, not sports. What about I've made that clear from the beginning, and as you know, sometimes they're in conflict, or often they're in conflict. Yeah. What about um, theaters and music programs? Um, we have all this. We have great music. 
Um, we have in our Franklin Academy, we have one of the best bands in the state and have had for the last 10 years. So we have a whole range of it. In Thales, we have a program called the Luddy Institute of Technology. And essentially what it is, it's your elective and it's four years of engineering. So the students in the LIT program in their sophomore year will get a credential in SolidWorks, which is a 3D design program, exactly the same one that we use at Captive Air. So the opportunities for these students are absolutely enormous. Yeah, I was reading about that and, and that that I thought that was interesting because obviously with the direct instruction stuff that's focused on K through five, just reading and writing and arithmetic and grammar and all and all those things. But it seems that one of the possibilities of privatizing education is to have I mean more types of education. Not not if you want to do engineering when you're fifteen, if you want to do art, if you want to do music, would you be open to having more electives for students pursuing different paths in life, even beyond just the sort of STEM kind of path? Actually, that's uh, one of my goals, and we're doing as much as we can in that area. Uh, but we don't want to have just endless scattered electives. We want them to be directed towards something. It's my belief that when a student finds something that they're really interested on, in, it turns them on in life. So it could be photography, it could be cooking engineering, uh, go on down the list. Uh, we are going to introduce a program. If you don't choose LIT, you might choose the Luddy Leadership Program in the future, which we're just putting together. And that's going to provide a whole range of skills in management, personal finance, ability to communicate. We already have in place what we call the Luddy Outcomes. We have 15 outcomes, beginning with integrity, and uh, mostly non-cognitive type of skills, which we develop in the students. And as they become seniors and even before then, uh, this is integral to their uh, curriculum and instruction, and it helps produce a very superior student. Uh, one last thing that we're working on, not fully introduced, we want to introduce students before they leave high school to as many and broad concepts as possible. We may not be able to get them to an expert level, but we will introduce the concept and stress it. So as they begin their lifetime learning and their college career, they're aware of a wide depth and breadth of knowledge and information that they can take advantage of. You mentioned you've had one or two years of graduating classes now. This is our, this will be our second year of graduating class. What percent of the of the kids in the, the first graduating class went on to college? Well, the first graduating class was three students. Oh, okay. <laughs> by an oddity, they all went to UNC, which is very hard to get into. Okay. But I would say that uh, for the second graduating class, it's going to be the same thing. They're all going to go to college. So this is grouped in, the, in that there were three seniors or do you group it in that kind of way as graduation? It's, no, it, there were just three seniors uh, because – when you start a new school over time, particularly as you get into high school, you, you, you endure many drops until you prove out the school. So those first graduating classes tend to be small. And then after two or three years, they become normal. So how big are the class, like the freshman class? Well, our, in our sixth grade now, we're admitting almost 300 students this year. 
Interesting. And how- in the ninth grade, we will be in the range of 125 to 150 per school. And we have two of those six twelves. So longer term, we anticipate graduating in the range of 300 students from our existing schools. And of course, we're developing more schools. Yeah, how many schools do you have? We have six campuses open for Thales. And we have another five in some stage of development, at least two of which will be open next year. Are all of these in North Carolina or are you expanding elsewhere? At the current time, they're all in North Carolina, but we are looking throughout the southeast and we've had inquiries from around the country. Are there states in the region that you couldn't expand into because the the educational laws wouldn't allow you to do what you're doing? I haven't fully researched that yet, but for the most part in the southeast, it would not be a problem. In particularly some of the Midwest and Northeast uh, states, we would not go in there <laughs> based on regulation. That, that, that's understandable. So, and, and so it seems like the long-term goal is is even bigger and bigger. The sky's the limit. We can try to get people to understand the possibility of private education by by showing it to them more, rather than uh, writing more white papers from the Cato Institute, for example. Well, one thing I've learned is uh, in, in many different ways, you, you have to have models on the ground to convince people. And if we can make this model large enough, and even as, as a small now, model now, Thales has 2,200 st- uh, students. It's had a tremendous impact on people's thinking. For example, in northern Wake County, which is the Raleigh area, we estimate that one in four students is not in the public system. If we went back to 98, that would have been uh, one in 12. Now it's one in four in that area. In Wake County, one in five students is no longer in the public system. So there's a tremendous impact from even one good school. Uh, Another thing that we've we have a professor at North Carolina State University, Dr. Bart Danielson, and he's done studies that indicate that a really good school, and it could be public, private, um, Christian, et cetera, will attract uh, parents <clears throat> and development at a higher propensity than a really good business. So if you look at economic development and community development, really good schools are the driver rather than anything else. How much room for, I guess, variance in teaching methodologies do you see? So are there – you have a very specific philosophy and instruction style that you, you're you using at Thales. Um, but are there, say, other other private schools, other networks of private schools that are doing you know, similar things to you in terms of business model but are – adopting wildly different models? There are. Um, And I think one of the things with private schools, ideally you want thousands of good models, as many as possible. Even if you looked within our school and you talked about direct instruction, which is very formal, and we went to five different instructors, you will see the differences in those instructors doing approximately the same thing, but using their own skills and talents uh, to help the students learn. So if you move into the classic curriculum, what we don't want the teacher to do is just make up their own curriculum. 
because we have to know what those students are being taught, but they can use their own personal skills to help student learn that curriculum. And that's the real value of a teacher. What do you think is the ideal policy space for education right now in the sense of having worked in this in a variety of different ways? Should we be going for vouchers? Should we be pushing charters as, a, as an injury drug? Should we be pushing for tax credits? Or should we just be pushing for the government to get out of it entirely? In the ideal world, the government out of it entirely. Uh, charters I view as a transitional idea which has helped change and improve education, but it's only transitional because given enough time, the bureaucrats will destroy the charters. Any type of tax credit or free voucher that um, is available is helpful, ESAs. Very often with these uh, vouchers, they put another prescription on them of all the things that you have to do to get the voucher, and we would not participate in a program of that nature. Because any restriction on freedom, and we know this from our country, we know it from companies, restrictions on freedom uh, reduce the possibility of improvement. Uh, so this idea, we're going to give you a voucher, but we're going to tell you what you should do. They're really trying to put you back in the same box as a public school. And again, we would not participate. And I know many, many private schools will not participate in that kind of system. But even with the the improvement model, how do you respond to the sort of the biggest critique? I think I know big supporters of public schools who who don't necessarily disagree with the idea that schools could become better and, and more dynamic if we had private school. But they they really have a problem with the distribution. They think that poor people will be left behind. And we've already talked about you know you still have to pay a fair amount to get into your school, you have to be able to drive your kid, pay extra for extracurricular activities, things like that. And some people just are very offended by that inequality that they see in the system. I think that is exactly upside down. So think this through. The top 25% or 35% of the students in the public school that are doing the best are the ones coming from the highest income areas and the nicest areas to live. The underserved are the two-thirds below them, and typically you will see that's the group that's going to move to the charter, to the private school if they can get in, the use of a voucher. That's the opportunity and way out for them, and if it weren't for that top third that were in these cushy public schools getting everything their way for free, the public school system would have long since collapsed. So if they really want to help the people at the bottom, and there's so much evidence of this, there was a scholarship program you probably remember 10 years ago where they required the poorest people to put in 800 or $1,000 and they scholarshiped the rest. And it, the program was way oversubscribed. So I'll make the case that the poorest people want a good opportunity for their children just like the rich people do. But it's not provided to them. So these people who say, well, we're going to protect and defend the public, the poor people, and we're going to put them in terrible schools, they're the source of the problem, not the solution. It seems like uh, the, your experience in charters, charters and private education 
is, is probably very personally rewarding uh, to you. Is, is that the case? Is there do you have? Do you get a lot of good feedback about how you feel that you're helping people out and 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 because you you already had a business, you were already doing stuff, but then you decided to add this to your life. So it just made you busier, if nothing else. But you, you get a lot out of it. It's the most rewarding thing that I've done in my life because I can help control the outcome. And interesting comments that I get from parents, and this is very typical, they will come and say, you haven't just changed the life of our children, you've changed the life of our families. Because one of the things that we want to do is influence the family to move to higher academic levels, higher achievement levels. And children have a huge impact on their parents. So as they learn things, uh, they at at least uh, influence their parents. I had one example where uh, a young lady had her uh, daughter in kindergarten for half a year, and she told her husband, we need to up our game because five years from now, our child's going to be learning and doing things that we don't even understand. And these were professional people. <laughs> so we talked about the growth possibilities. We talked about where this is where this is going. Um, are you seeing – more shifting of attitudes towards public schools, even across the nation, and then and then secondly, is are you looking in your ten-year, twenty-year window, twenty-five, fifty, a hundred schools, uh, just pushing it as far as you can possibly go? I'm seeing a tremendous difference in attitude in the almost twenty years that I've been engaged with this. So if you went back to 97 in Wake County, very few people knew what a charter school was. And when I introduced it, nobody knew what it was. And the idea of school choice barely existed. Today, if you look at northern Wake County, almost every parent seems to want their child into one of these schools of choice. So where there was one charter school that we started, there's now seven charter schools Everyone has a waiting list. So tremendous shift in the attitude of parents and a tremendous realization. If you went back in Wake County, North Carolina, 10 years ago, they touted themselves as the greatest school system on the planet. And they said it over and over again. I haven't heard that in the last five years because nobody uh, – well, initially they believed it, but in the modern times, nobody would believe that. So I'm thinking that we're going to see 20% school choice and it's going to go to 25 and it's going to go to 30. It's going to vary around the country. But I think in the longer term, you're going to see very large numbers of parents moving to school choice. Thanks for listening. This episode of Free Thoughts was produced by Tess Terrible and Evan Banks. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.